0: Yo, 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 this is Ryan from Bible Dingers, and we have another exciting episode for you guys today. We're going to continue down this rabbit hole of eschatology, and in this episode, we are going over the dispensational premillennial view of Revelation. And for this interview, we wanted to have Dr. Daryl Bach on because he is such a respected voice, especially in the dispensational world. So let me give you a little bit of information on Dr. Daryl Bach, if you by some strange chance have not heard of him yet. Dr. Bach received his bachelor's from the University of Texas in 1975. He got a master's in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary in 1979. He got a PhD from the University of Aberdeen in 1983. And he also did postdoctoral study at Tubingen University. Dr. Bach has earned recognition as a Humboldt scholar from Tubingen University in Germany. He's the author of over 40 books, including well regarded commentaries on Luke and Acts and studies of the historical Jesus, and working cultural engagement as host of the seminary's table podcasts. He was president of the Evangelical Theological Society from 2000 to 2001, served as a consulting editor for Christianity Today, and serves on the boards of Wheaton College and Chosen People Ministries. His articles appear in leading publications. He is often an expert for the media on New Testament issues. Dr. Bach has been a New York Times bestselling author in nonfiction, serves as a staff consultant for bent tree fellowship church in Carrollton, texas and is elder at trinity fellowship church in dallas so we were really excited to have dr bach on like i said we really respect his voice in this conversation and i hope that you guys enjoy this interview with dr daryl bach So, Dr. Block, I am truly honored to have you on the show today and thank you so much for joining me.
1: I'm glad to be with you. It's It's good to be joining you for a conversation that I think we'll find interesting.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've been dealing with eschatology a lot lately and I had to have you on to discuss your viewpoint on it. And so with that being said, could you give us sort of a, just a general overview of dispensational premillennialism? I know that's a big question, but, you know, just
1: sort of a 10,000-foot view. Okay, so let me deal with each word one at a time. A dispensation is basically an administrative arrangement. So um, it comes from the uh, Greek word oikonomia, which gets translated into Latin into dispensatio and so that's where the dispensationalism comes from so it's basically the idea that god has arranged his program in in different administrative arrangements so that um israel as a nation being the center of the people of god is not the same as the church with christ uh having come but absent and in the millennium with christ present in, in relationship to a second coming Uh, is the third administrative arrangement that makes up the different dispensations that we often talk about. And then premillennialism simply means that Christ comes back before the millennium. It's in contrast usually to amillennialism, which basically argues we're in the kingdom now, and the kingdom will end up um, being established firmly when Jesus comes back, and there's not a thousand-year reign with Jesus on the earth before the new heavens and the new earth. That's premillennialism. It comes back before that millennium, then the new heavens and the new earth, in contrast to amillennialism, which says there is no millennium per se. We go directly to Christ's second coming to the new heavens and the new earth.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. So, with that being said, what are some of the major portions of scripture that would cause you to agree with dispensational premillennialism?
1: Well, I've already given one of them, just the mere structure of who God works with in the peoples of God, whether it be a nation, uh, Jews and Gentiles gathered together in the body of Christ with Christ absent, and then Christ present on the earth, ruling over all the earth. Those are three clear dispensations. Those are three clear elements. And those are not so much dictated by verses as they are the whole narrative of the Bible. Uh, then the premillennialism part has to do primarily with Revelation 20 and the idea that there are certain things that are described that Christ is going to do as a result of his second coming. There are things that happen in the interim and then there are things that ha- come afterwards. And the term thousand years is used six times in the space of a handful of verses. And you can count them on one hand uh, in Revelation 20. And so I tell people if the Reference to Revelation 20 is simply a period for a short period of time or a period of time unspecified. Why would you use it six times in the space of a few verses? And then on top of that, Revelation is a theodicy. It's designed to explain how um, the people of God will recover from the present torment that they're in, living in a fallen world. And in theodicy, the idea that God has a calendar That he's working with and he has a plan and a program is a part of that theodicy you can read other um, the theodosic portions of the old testament if you will and there's always a calendar daniel has times 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 time and half a time that kind of thing so the idea that the number would be specific and that it marks out a calendrical feature that says god has a specific program is a part of the genre Got it.
0: So, for context' sake, um, we've had eschatological discussions uh, to this point with a post-millennialist, um, a historic premillennialist, and we have not yet had the amillennialist conversation. But I suspect they will have the same objection that the post and historic pre. Uh, have presented towards dispensational premillennialism. And I'll ask you what your thoughts are on the other views later on in the interview, but uh, both of the theologians that I've already interviewed have brought up the objection for dispensational premillennialism that it doesn't have any sort of uh, support throughout church history that it's the new guy on the block and for that reason we shouldn't use that uh, method to interpret revelation. And so what would you say to that objection as a dispensational premillennialist?
1: Well I'd say two things. Let me use an analogy first. We didn't have the terminology for the Trinity for a few centuries uh, and when we we're thinking about the doctrine of God, that took few, uh, several centuries to work out, uh, and we're into the fourth century before we get the precise terminology. That doesn't stop anyone from affirming that the Trinity uh, exists. We did have, at the very beginning of the early church, a very clear commitment to a literal kingdom and to Achillesm In fact, it was one of the early church controversies. And so the idea that a millennium or that premillennialism is new is simply wrong. Um, what is a new fe- feature is this discussion of the way in which dispensations work, and the and but those structures are embedded in the scripture, as I've tried to suggest, and so um, so thinking through what's involved with that and the approach involved with that did in some of its details come later, but um, the elements that are there are both in the scripture. And in the Kiliasm that was actually the original eschatology of the early church.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So basically, just because we don't have the terms doesn't necessarily mean that it hasn't been there historically.
1: And the, and the elements of it haven't been discussed. What's, what, is, what happens over time, of course, is that you systematize these mm. uh, teachings and, and give them some structure and coherence. And that's what systematic theology does in a whole lot of areas. So uh, the fact that that's going on shouldn't surprise us.
0: Understood. So what would you say to folks, and I've I've heard this objection quite a bit as well, um, to to oppose dispensational premillennialism. And a lot of folks who disagree with it, I would say uh, a lot of amillennialists in particular would say that a dispensational premillennialist takes these prophecies in Revelation and perhaps Daniel too literally that they're not meant to be taken literally to the point that a dispensational premillennialist takes them. So what would
1: your response be to that objection? Well, I, I think I think the way I would say it is they take it more literally than the Omelian does, but no one's taking them literally. Um, if you read Revelation and all the symbolism that's involved and all the description that's involved with the locusts, et cetera, what you're seeing is a description in metaphorical and pictorial terms of what the end is like and the chaos at the end. Everyone is interpreting that not as literal in the literal sense of uh, of locusts and frogs and that kind of thing, but in terms of the kind of suffering that is represented by things like a locust plague. That's the way Joel works, for example, in introducing the Day of the Lord, is that the locust plague was a picture of what the Day of the Lord's going to be like. And so uh, so so everyone is wrestling with some degree uh, of, uh, of rhetoric present in the language. But the difference is that an amillennialist has a larger theology that has caused them to um, diminish... The earthly role of the eschaton, although there are now forms of abominism that are trying to bring that back, which is important because that's a movement towards dispensationalism. But uh, but tend to think in universal terms and not so much of this history on this earth uh, with Israel in the land and the land promises of the Old Testament. Are repeated uh, multiple times within Genesis, multiple times within the Pentateuch, multiple times within the prophets. So the idea that Israel isn't just a people, but a people with a land and a people as a nation is part of the promise that gets reaffirmed and part of the promise that gets reaffirmed in uh, Romans 9 to 11 with the idea that the natural branch has been cut off, but they're going to be brought back in. And that's in a context in which Israel is already in the land. And the promises that are for Israel uh, as Jesus comes back to Jerusalem to rule, very specific place. I've already introduced the calendrical features that are a part of theodicy as a part of this conversation as well. So all those elements together tell us the Bible is signaling something pretty concrete when it comes to eschatology. And to leave it in a more spiritualized space is actually to ignore the pointers that come. Perhaps no passage is more important than Acts 3, 18 to 22, where Peter says that heaven must hold the Messiah until the times of restoration come. And if you want to read about the times of restoration, they're in the prophets of old. And there's no note that says, oh, you can read the prophets of old, but please reconfigure what you're reading there from the prophets. No, Hmm. it says it's already been revealed. The story's already been told. That's the rest of the program. So, uh, read it, and look forward to your hope. So,
0: I just want to go back a bit and and perhaps clarify, even for for my own thinking and and you may be able to clear up a couple of misconceptions that I may even be holding. Um, from what I understand, the dispensational, premillennial view of revelation is that, a lot of these events will truly, literally take place, and when I when I think of a dispensational premillennialist, I do think sort of along the lines of the Left Behind series. And I don't I don't mean that as an insult. If if it's if anybody takes that as an insult or anything like that, I truly believe that uh, the writers were dispensational premillennial, and a lot of the. Uh, scenes that they played out in the book was a literal locusts coming and sort of tormenting the earth uh, the sun literally darkening and wormwood literally getting flung upon the earth and things like that so you you maybe you can clarify a little bit for me and for the listeners are are these actual literal events that we should be expecting or are they just sort of uh metaphorical and they will be locust like or wormwood like events
1: i think what i'm holding out is the possibility it could be either in other words uh that that what i'm saying is it might be literal it might be along the analogy of the play which clearly were creation acting against people so that certainly is a possibility but there also is the possibility that something like the or something like that—that that is devastating and and uh, earth-shattering, if I can use that phrase. Uh, certainly, disrupting. I think we'll take credit for that. Um, could also be in view and and could be represented by the by the imagery of the plagues. So it, it's so it's it's not a case of saying it must be this. It's a case of saying it could be this, but it also could be that. Got
0: it, got it, and that that makes a lot of sense because, yeah, that that was a misconception on my part. Then uh, I always understood it as it, it has to be a literal fulfillment of you know these things that that seem sort of metaphorical.
1: Well, what's here. really interesting is is that you have writers who wrote on premillennialism who would view the locust as being a way of depicting like helicopters and that kind of thing, right? Uh, in the, in the battle of war, so you're already seeing a move in a more if I can say this pictorial direction, metaphorical direction, with the imagery, and that's coming from very traditional dispensationalists in some cases. Now, I don't think that's necessary. I don't, I don't think we're necessarily getting that move. But we, but, but the point is, uh, everyone's wrestling with. All right, what exactly does this terminology indicate? Got it.
0: Well, well, I appreciate that answer because that helped me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the reason why I say that as well is because, um, and I mentioned this in another interview, I go to a, a church where we're teaching through the book of Revelation currently from an amillennial perspective. And so that's been giving me uh, a lot of stuff to think about because this has been classically my weakest subject. Um, and one of the objections that I found interesting when we first started uh, going through the book of Revelation was uh, my pastor's mention of Revelation 1, 9, uh, where John calls himself a partner in the tribulation. And to me, that that gave me pause for a second, because if he was writing a couple thousand years ago, and the tribulation is, is sometime in the future then how could he tell the reader that he's a partner in the tribulation?
1: Okay, so there are two parts to this. The first is is that, as Romans 8 says, the creation is groaning like in birth pains, uh, even now for the redemption that God is going to come. So we're in a period of tribulation because we're still in the state of fallenness. But what eschatology says is there's a period of an even more intense um, presence of evil, that's going to be called the great tribulation, if I can make that distinction. And so what revelation is dealing with, at least in part, although revelation itself is complicated because revelation could well be a typological prophecy in which things in the short term mirror what the end is going to be like, just the end is going to be more intense. And so, um, so, so you've got that dimension. So I would say that nine says, yeah, John feels that he's a part of the tribulation because he's waiting for the, for the redemption of the creation, which is what eschatology is all about. But certainly what he is describing in, in chapters 4 through 19 are a much more more intense form of pressure on the creation than John is currently experiencing. And uh, and then as an aside, and this is my critique of all millennialism: if Satan is um, chained currently because we're in the millennium, it is a very loose chain, uh, and uh, uh, you know because um, Satan seems to be pretty alive and well on planet Earth, mm-hmm. and is pretty busy on planet Earth. So either he's in a prison that's got quite an internet system with the demons or the loo- or the chain is pretty loose.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's always been uh my probably my biggest objection to amillennialism up to this point. Uh I just I just can't get around that, especially when I see uh verses about Satan prowling around the earth like a roaring lion uh and and Paul was living in the church age and and things like that. So
1: yeah. Satan's not in a zoo. He's not in
0: a cage yet. <laughs> exactly. Um, I Man, I really appreciate your response, Your responses to a lot of these popular rebuttals to dispensational premillennialism. It's given me a lot to think about. Um, I want to move away from that. I want to stop challenging your view for a bit. And I want to see what your opinion is on some of these other views. And you spoke to millennialism a bit Uh. Here, so I guess we can we can just move right into that. I suppose besides Satan uh, not seeming to be chained up right now in our time, is there anything else that makes you not really agree with the amillennial interpretation of Revelation?
1: Well, let me let me take you. I don't know if I'm just going to talk about Revelation, but this is a way to think about the Bible as a whole. Sometimes what you hear from an amillennialist is. Um, the, the premillennialist will complain that the amillennialist has a replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel. And that's a complaint that Israel has dropped out of the program of God from a premillennialist to an amillennialist. The amillennialist will respond by saying, well, I don't believe in replacement theology. I believe in fulfillment theology. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the promises. And if you're not connected to him, you're not connected to the promise. Now, that's actually true. Uh, So that is actually a good response to the kind of objection that Primilius give. But it's also an incomplete response because the next thing to note is, all right, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, then what does the fulfiller have to say about the promises? And he actually addressed this in the Gospels. He said, Israel's house is desolate until she says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or in the Olivet Discourse, Jerusalem will be overrun until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Or the Acts 3 passage I've already noted, which is heaven holds Jesus until the times of restoration. And that comes in a context where the disciples asked two chapters earlier, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples teaching them about what was to come. They still were not disabused of the idea that Israel is going to have a role in the fulfillment, in the full fulfillment that comes with the kingdom. They're still expecting that. And Jesus' answer was, oh, you've got this wrong. I spent 40 days with you in the Eschatology 101 class. So I'm going to have to spend 40 more days to have you get it right so you'll ask the right question. No, Jesus' response is, it's not for you to the times and seasons set by the Father. He accepts the premise. He just simply says, it's none of your business. This is something that's, that's in the Father's sovereign will and end of discussion. And so, and when Peter puts that together in chapter three, having had that conversation, he hasn't changed his idea that the rest of the hope is described in what already exists in the Hebrew scripture in the Old Testament. And so, um, so that point is very well taken. So, my, part of my pushback against all millennialism is the hermeneutic that you're espousing is a good hermeneutic to center everything in Christ. But if you're going to center everything in Christ, then please center everything in Christ, okay, including the things that he taught and including the things that those who followed him taught. Because Paul comes along later, of course, in Romans 9 to 11. He's weeping over the fact that Israel has not responded. He says at the beginning of that section, I wish I could be accursed okay, for the sake of my brethren, because they're not responding. He'd love to be the substitutionary atonement for them. Okay, but that's not a part of the program. So by the time he gets to 11, he thinks about, well, you know, if God can graft in unnatural branches, that's Gentiles, then certainly he can graft in natural branches. And he anticipates that and says, and in this way, all Israel is going to be saved. So he Mm -hmm. anticipates that in the future, there's a role for Israel and they will be restored back to, the, to an aspect of the role that they had before they were cut off because they were not responding to the gospel. And he's assuming in the midst of that, of course, that there will be a mass of Jews who will eventually respond to Jesus.
0: Got it. Got it. All right. And does that sort of lead us into some of the differences between dispensational and historic premillennialism? And And also on top of that, could you sort of explain the differences between the two for me?
1: Yeah, the difference between historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, at least some forms of it, is actually not that great. Um, uh, And so when people get confused between the two, in some ways it's natural. Uh, One of the differences generally is that a dispensational premillennialist will tend to be also pre-tribulational, assuming that Christ is coming back for the church, then you have the great tribulation, then you have the second coming of Jesus. Generally speaking, historic premills tend to be post-tribulational, so they they see the the rapture uh, or the catching up of the saints and the return of Christ as all one event in in the same point of time. Okay, so that's certainly one difference that often happens. The other is that generally speaking, historic pre-meals are not as clear about the role of Israel as a people. Um, as a nation in the program of God in comparison to dispensationalists. So a uh, historic premillennialist will say, yeah, I expect that there'll be a mass of Jews who will convert to Christ at the end. But whether Israel as a nation functions in the midst of the nations, that's another discussion. Whereas the dispensationalist will tend to say, He comes for people on the one hand, but he's also forming a nation, and Christ will come back to Jerusalem and rule from Jerusalem on the other, and Israel will be a nation in the midst of nations as a part of that peaceful time. Here's another difference. This applies across the board, so we're not talking about the various groups here. But to the extent that someone is a millennialist, okay, whatever form of premillennialism, the idea is, is that Christ rules over the earth from Jerusalem. So Israel has a role in the midst of the nations, but it's not in a hostile world anymore. So it's not a nationalism. It is, is, this is a capital of a group of nations that comprise the world, all of whom are responding to Christ. Um, And so that changes the dimensions. Uh, The analogy I like to make there, it's like the European Union. Okay. People are European on the one hand, but they can be Italian or German or French or whatever. I don't know what to do with the British. I'll let them figure that out. But, uh, but you know, and, and so you can have differentiation on the one hand and yet a sense of unity on the other at the same time. And so when we come to the millennium, Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem. Israel will be in the midst of the nations, but the nations will be at peace with Israel. There's a wonderful passage in Isaiah 19 that talks about a highway that runs from Egypt through Jerusalem to Assyria and everyone's gonna to stream to Jerusalem to worship to worship the Lord. And and Egypt, Israel, and Assyria are all described in terms that show that they're God's people.
0: Hmm. Gotcha. So when I spoke with the historic premillennialist, he also made uh, the distinction that most dispensational believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and most historic believe in a post-tribulational. Could you tell me why you believe in a pre-tribulational
1: rapture? Because the church is promised in the epistles, particularly in the Thessalonian epistles, that she will not experience the wrath of God. And given how widespread the great tribulation is and the creation chaos that is created in the midst of that, it's hard to believe that you can be on earth and miss it. Hmm.
0: Got it. Got it. All right. So we talked a little bit about Amil. We talked a little bit about historic. We got one more, um, at least major view. What are your thoughts on post-millennialism and why do you disagree with that interpretation?
1: Okay. One sentence, I'll answer the question. Are we making progress on the earth? (laughs) I suppose that is a bit subjective,
0: depending on who (laughs) you are, where you are.
1: But the sense is, are we any closer now to being connected to God and being responsive to him than we were 10 centuries ago or five centuries ago? That's the point. There was a time when postmillennialism and the optimism of postmillennialism, you know, things will get better and better and then Christ will show up, um, uh, was very popular in the 19th century. And then we had two world wars. That killed post millennialism for a time, so um, it, it it probably should have done so permanently. But uh, but you know things sometimes come back. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, um, the game whack a mole. You know, it pops yeah. up every now and again. <laughs> and so uh, um, and, and so in that sense, um, you know, the, just the simple idea of are we progressing? Are we getting? You you kind of can't have it both ways. The scripture says that when the end times comes, the people will have wandered seriously from the Lord. I mean, there'll be a, it'll be a more intense anti-God time than periods before, okay? Well, how do you have that alongside the idea that we're getting better and better and that the influence of the church is growing more and more? I can't think of a more out-of-touch eschatological approach than post-millennialism hmm. because what it also assumes is a kind of dominion theology uh, for the church that the church uh, in the New Testament is never said to possess. The church exists in the midst of the world as a refuge for what's going on in the world. And uh, when we make the world better and better and better, so we listen the distance between the world and the church, um, we actually are doing something scripture doesn't doesn't do and it and it doesn't explain the tribulation itself and the rebellion that God is dealing with in the tribulation period. So now I may badly misunderstand post post millennialism, but I think those are the problems with it.
0: What do you make of some of these popular reform leaders uh moving to post millennialism? It almost seems a little bit trendy right now I think to move to post millennialism.
1: I think to be reformed and to move towards post-millennialism doesn't make sense Mm. because the reformed tradition of any of the theological traditions has a very deep understanding of total depravity. Yeah. So if only the gospel moves us towards, you know, um, transformation, uh, and yet we're totally depraved, You have to argue that God is going to have things get better and better and better until we're finally there. But I look around for the evidence that that's happening and, um, I'm still waiting.
0: Yeah. I hear you, man. Yeah. Here. And especially here up in the Northeast, man, it seems like it's getting bad fast. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But, uh, Man, I, I think that's all I had for you. I really appreciate all the uh, well-thought-out uh, answers to some of these difficult questions. A lot of these rebuttals, Um, I don't know if I mentioned any time in this interview, I came from a dispensational pre-millennial uh, presupposition, I guess you could say, to this topic. And some of these objections, they took me back. And I was like, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Um, so I really appreciate The thoughtfulness of your answers, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to
1: me about this today. Oh, we're glad to do it anytime, and uh, um, may you survive in the Northeast.
0: (laughs) It's difficult, but we're trying up here, we're trying awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Bach. I really do. Thanks again for joining me.
1: Sure.